Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, amen to everything Brandon said, and thank God for our first responders in this community, in this church, in the world around us. Uh, we are very, very grateful for your service. Uh, we're also today standing on the eve of the beginning of football season, uh, at least for the Texans. Yeah, today the Texans begin the journey to Super Bowl 50. They are undefeated. And theoretically, they have as good a chance as anyone else to win the Super Bowl today. Theoretically. And we're pulling. Yeah, go Texans. I, I know there, there are a couple of you who don't quite agree. Uh, I, I've seen a couple of, of Cowboy jerseys and I'm for the Cowboys for every game except when they play our Texans go Texans and and can you imagine how exciting it would be if they if they make it all the way to the playoffs and and then for the first time they make it to the Super Bowl to Super Bowl 50 in San Francisco I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? And, and, and even more, if they, they won it, I mean, that would be the most amazing thing. That would, be, that would satisfy so many longing hearts and, and, and people who have, who have dreamed of that day. And it would be incredible, at least until next September, when they would start all over again. I mean, it's great, and I'm, I'm fully for them, and I'm pulling for them. As, as great as the Texans winning the Super Bowl would be, it, it really isn't the end-all or the be-all of life and existence. It, it doesn't answer all the questions that, that are out there that, that you and I face on a day-by-day basis. If it did, then teams like the Patriots in Seattle wouldn't be working as hard to try to win again. If winning was it, why would people try again? And, and, and yet, how often do we look to the things of this world like they're the answer? On Wednesday in our Exploring Christianity journey group, Nicky Gumbel, in one of our videos, talked about how often he, he, he sees, we see people who are seeking more money in life or a, a higher position at work, a better, better job, or they're looking for that right home that will, that will be the, the, the thing or the right relationship that will make everything fall into place and be so wonderful. And when we get there and when, and when we do, he says, those things are wonderful. It is incredible. It is great. But then he went on to say, but three weeks later, we're wondering if it was as great as we thought. It's good. We like it. Was it all we expected it to be? I mean, the truth is, can the stuff of this world ultimately ever satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts? That's a really important question. And I suspect if you're like me and folks seated around you, you've tried some of that and it's never quite made it. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I haven't gotten quite far enough. I haven't quite gotten to that place where it would be enough. Maybe, but maybe some of us are searching for something. 
that really doesn't exist, at least here on earth right now. If, if life right now is pretty good for you, that, I mean, that is wonderful. And, and this, this idea may be a little more than a casual thought that enters into your mind every once in a while, kind of when you pause in the midst of, of, of all the busyness. And yet I suspect it's still there. But if life is kind of challenging right now, and it gets that way, doesn't it? It gets that way for all of us sooner or later. If maybe even you're kind of struggling, or struggling a little, maybe struggling a lot, then it can become a pretty important issue because maybe, maybe it's starting to get to you. Maybe you're even starting to feel a little bit desperate about what's it going to take. Well, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter nearly 2,000 years ago to some Christians in what is today northern Turkey, trying to help them as they were starting to deal with some pressures in life and starting to try to figure out how to, to go forward with them. And their pressures were mainly because they were Christians. And that is probably also the case for many of us in here. And I think he knew from his own firsthand experience that they were starting to wonder if this was all there was, they, had, they in fact, even they had committed their lives to Christ, and, and they yet had still have found sometimes that, was there any hope? I mean, after all, aren't Christians supposed to, to have it all, to always be on top, to never have any problems, and if you do, it means you, you must not have enough faith? If you believe that, you don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus. And these Christians that Peter was writing to were starting to discover that being a follower of Christ actually made life harder, at least in terms of the culture that they were having to deal with around them. And they needed some hope. They needed some encouragement. Was it actually worth it to them to walk the talk and not just talk the walk? Because see, it's easy, it's easy to say, I'm a Christian, and, and, and to proclaim all this. But, but in the midst of life, when it gets to be a struggle, if we aren't living it, if we're not experiencing it, we're playing at it. Maybe we are talking more than we're walking. Could following Jesus really work? I mean, that's the question. Whether you're a believer or not, that's really a fundamental question. Can it, feel, can it fill my longings? Can it really help? Over the next few weeks in our series, Walk the Talk, we're going to dig in to this first letter that Peter wrote. In the, we find it in the Bible, in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament, that, and see if what he wrote to those, those Christians in Asia Minor over 1,900 years ago can still speak to us in Southeast Houston area in the 21st century. If, in fact, it can even have a profound impact on our lives. If we're serious, really serious about following Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I, I did a message that gave some background to this letter. And if you missed it, you may want to go to our website and you can download the podcast or you can go to our Facebook page and actually watch, watch it if you want a little more background. 
And even though, I can tell you, we're going to be spending the next few weeks on this book of the Bible, this letter. One of the things that I get, I get really frustrated, in fact, is there's so much in this as there is in all of Scripture. That, that what I know is we won't even begin to cover nearly all that there is. So we have a journey group that offers you the opportunity to study more of 1 Peter if you'd like to do that. Uh, we have a journey group and we have some life groups who are digging into that as well. So this morning, what we're going to do as we do, we're going to do through this series is open our Bibles to 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and do that. Or if you're, you have it in a digital form, go ahead and open your mobile device to the U, Uversion Bible app and go to the live page and we've got notes and stuff there. If you have neither of those with you today, we've got a, uh, an insert in the bulletin, place for you to take notes, place that has scripture and, and all that written in there. So we're going to walk through what Peter has to say and see if it speaks to us today. Beginning right at the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered around Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And in this two verse, just two verses, introduction, Peter is writing to Christians. These Christians are probably what we would call Gentile Christians. That's what, in fact, most of us are. There are in, in biblical times, there were Gentiles and there were Jews. Jews were those who uh, were part of God's chosen people who over time it became a, 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 a genetic, I mean a line, a, a group of people that were together, and, and essentially everybody else was Gentile. And so today in a church like ours, the, the reality is most of us are Gentile Christians, uh, or, or Gentiles even if we haven't made that decision yet. So he's writing primarily to the Gentile Christians versus Christians who had grown up as Jews who had then committed their life to him. Not that it, what he wrote doesn't speak to them as well. And yet Peter, right from the start, is affirming to them, to the majority of the people who's reading this letter, that they are not second-class citizens in their faith, called, this faith called Christianity, that came out of, of Judaism. Because he calls them, right here from the beginning, he calls them God's elect and that may or may not mean something to you, but the phrase was a phrase that Jews had applied to themselves for centuries to say that they were God's chosen, they were the elect, they were the ones who were special. In fact, much as the Jews had often felt like exiles or strangers in places like Egypt or Babylon, Peter is now saying to these Gentile Christians who have come later to the show, if you will, they're the first generation Gentile Christians, He's saying to them that though you also feel like strangers in this world who feel scattered from your home, you also are part of God's family. From the very first verse of this letter, we see he is telling his readers then, but he's telling us as well something very important that Christ's followers in that day and time through to this day have picked up the mantle of being God's chosen people. When in the Old Testament it talked about the, the elect and the chosen people of God, everybody knew it was the Jews. And the Jews wanted to continue to believe that that was true. But when they neglected the message of Jesus Christ, when they failed to respond to their Jewish Messiah, then the early church 
began to help people recognize that those Christians now were following in the steps of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses and David, that Christ's followers were now the chosen people. And in following Jesus, they were the true line of God's church, of God's people. The culmination of everything that God had been doing all through Scripture. All this stuff that some of you look at and you think, the Old Testament, and whether it has anything to speak to me. All of that is our Scripture. All of that is our story. And the Jews had the chance to take it and run with it first. And they neglected to do that. And God turned the nation of Israel into the church of Jesus Christ. The church became the nation. It was no longer whether or not your father or your mother had Jewish blood. Now it was whether or not you had faith. It was no longer you could be in or out because you didn't have the right family or you didn't grow up in a Jewish area. Now you could be God's family because you believed. The Old Testament, it turns out, is not just the story For the Jews, it's our story too. And in verse 2, Peter goes on to say that this has always been God's plan. His readers have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, God had begun this journey with the Jews some 2,000 years earlier, knowing that a day would come when he would send his son, a Jew, to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews and of all people. And as we walk through the Old Testament, we see God revealing more and more of himself and this eternal plan to go beyond a set of people to encompass all people. He he said over and over again to the Jews that you would be a light to the nations. He called them to that, but they kept trying to focus it in on themselves. But God increasingly revealed his plan for his beloved creation of humanity what some have called progressive revelation, that as we go through the pages of the Bible, what began with Abraham, where there was no written text, there was nothing but what they experienced directly from God, to today, where we are blessed to have God's word in print and in digital media in ways that that they never experienced. We have so much more of what God wants to say and, and, and all that has been revealed. And if you think about it, we... It had to occur progressively. For instance, you and I, we can't explain all the complexities of life to to a little two- or three-year-old. You can't help them understand why the IRS takes a part of your income. You, You can't really explain to them why, as they get a little older, sometimes they're not going to be picked first on a team. As they get older, they're not ready to hear you talk about the fact that sometimes people judge us by the color of our skin or where we grew up or what kind of job we have. They're not ready to hear that there are some people who are going to be mean, even if you're nice. We help them walk through it and learn progressively as they grow and they're able and yet, when we were young, we, we, we began thinking for ourselves at some point, and we, we often would respond when mom or dad or someone who cared for us would try to help us. We, we often had a, a, a very clear response when they were trying to do something for us. What was it? I can do it myself. 
didn't we? Let me do it, Mommy. I can do it. No, Daddy. No, I want to do it. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. And ultimately, we've learned that, and really in a sense, we've got to let them to the degree that they are able in order to learn that they have limits. And, and then they sort of let us be parents again and let us help them. And you see, when the Jews were young as a people, they were much like us as young children. And though God pointed them in the right direction, he let the Jews go it their way because they had to learn it from themselves. You could tell them and you could tell them just as we could tell our children over and again, listen, you've got to do it this way. But until often they learned it for themselves, it wasn't something that they wanted to do. And otherwise, they always thought, it's my mommy or my daddy keeping me from having fun. And the Jews kept thinking, we have the answer, God. We understand. You think you know how this works, but we've got it. We know what we need to do. And he let them. And they ended up suffering through the exile and through all kinds of adversity until they eventually discovered that they too needed God's help. And, and prophets told us, they, they foretold that this would happen, but also that God would ultimately do something new and incredible at a certain point in time. And by the New Testament, they were beginning to recognize what that point was. And in Galatians 4, it says, when the right time came, God sent his son. See, there's some things that weren't clear before the coming of the son. There was something that was progressing. It was moving along. God sent Jesus, his son, to lead his people. And Jesus pointed us then to a, a, a new kind of community called the church. And God's new instrument that through his spirit at Pentecost he created to be the new people of God. To be the elect. To be the chosen people. Do you know that if you are a follower of Christ, you are the chosen people. You are God's elect. You have responded to his grace. And to these people, God's chosen people, Peter offers them, he says, God's grace and peace. And what's cool is this echoes not only what other New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul wrote, it actually echoes a much older Old Testament writing, an Old Testament blessing. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Peter said grace and peace to you. Paul said grace and peace to you. Why did they do that? Because they stood in the line of God's family for which grace and peace had always been the blessing that all of us need God's grace to do what we cannot do in his peace to experience what we cannot find apart from him. And so here from the very beginning, in the first two verses, Peter is letting these Christians know that they stand in the line of, of God's faithful that they are no worse off. They are not apart just because they weren't born Jews. That they have the wonderful privilege of being in God's family, as you who have made that decision do too. Peter then turns in verse 3 to affirming the foundation for everything he's going to say to them in the letter. And, and more importantly, what they're going to grab onto, the hope that they need to face life, beginning with praise. 
He starts in verse 3 with praise, which is exactly what we've done in the, the first part of this service. We've praised God. We, we, we have sung a joyful noise to the Lord. And some of you, your noise is beautiful, and some of you, your noise may be noise to you. But let me tell you something. Not to God. And, and if you don't sing or at least rehearse the words that in your head, you're missing out on exactly what God has called us to do. God has never been worried about whether or not we sang in pitch, whether or not we got the intervals right. God has always known that his people were more blessed when they made a joyful noise, when they praise God from whom all blessings flow, when they say, as it says in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise takes it away from focus on me and turns it to him. Praise turns worship not into what do I get out of it, which if we're honest, many of us would say is important to us, but instead, what do I give into it? Because truthfully, you're not the audience. God is the audience. There's an audience of one. And when we come, he knows, are you praising him or are you biding your time? Are you praising him, even if you don't feel it, to enter into it? Because it's not just about feeling, it's about a decision, a choice. It's about being here. There was a story about an elderly gentleman who was nearly deaf. And every Sunday he came and he sat on the first row. And finally one day the preacher said, man, I'm so glad you're here. But I know you can't hear the words. Why, why, why is this so important to you? And he said, well, because I want everyone to know whose side I'm on. See, it's not simply about us. It's about praise. Because you and I need to turn from ourselves the world around us invites me to consume, but consuming is never enough, is it? That's the problem. It's turning us away to him, and that always begins in praise. It's a conscious decision, a conscious act, whether I can sing with the angels or I sing with a joyful noise. That is what God enjoys. And this, these words were probably a, a hymn of the early church. And Peter states, then why we praise, as we continue in verse 3, he says, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says, this great God who created all there is, who has shepherded the Jewish people for 2,000 years has bestowed upon us, these, these followers of Christ, great mercy. This great mercy, our great, our living hope, for the, gra the ground of our hope is not dead in a tomb, but is Jesus himself resurrected and alive. That our hope is not based on someone like an Abraham who, whom they could still go and find his bones or like a Moses that they knew where he was probably buried or some of the, the prophets who were buried and they could go to them and there was the cave that they were buried in. He is saying to us, this is not a dead hope. This is not something just in the past. This is about someone who was dead 
and came back to life. He is the risen Savior, the resurrected Lord. It's why we celebrate Easter. It is a big deal. It's huge because it means our hope is not left in the grave. It's not based on someone who just lived a long time ago, but who is in the world today. We serve a risen Savior who's in the world today, who walks with me and talks with me along life's way. In the Ephesians it says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. Listen to that. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, in other words, we had no future, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God did this for us, for you and me. But we can be just like the Jews. And we can try to say, but it's my birthright. Or I did it. Look, mommy, I can do it. I don't need you. That's exactly how the Jews lived. And we missed the whole point. It is only by the grace of God that we can be saved. You and I cannot do it ourselves. You can't try harder. You can't be better. And believe me, I've tried. And that is, that is a hamster wheel. It goes round and round and round. And gets, it is nothing more frustrating than to think I'm starting to do better when something happens. Uh-oh. I'm lost again. When we get into that rat race, we are doomed to, a, to a, a journey that there's no hope. God did this for us through his grace. But Peter tells us even more about this living hope. Verse 4, he says, And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. This resurrection not only proves that we can trust Christ, who said he would rise from the dead, that we can trust him, that his message is real, but it is also an insurance of an inheritance. Because He says, I am the first of those who follow me. This is what, what happened to me is what will happen to you. This inheritance waits all of his followers in the future. The, in the Greek here, the, the words for perish, spoil, and fade all begin with the same letter. You know, alliteration. Writers like to use things to emphasize and, and make points over and over again. That's what they're trying to do to, to emphasize that this inheritance, this inheritance can't die. This inheritance can't spoil. This inheritance can't decay or fade away. And what's more, it's kept in heaven. The most wondrous place of all where nothing can take it away, nothing can undermine it, nothing can destroy it. You and I can take, and we can say the best investment I could have would be gold. Because it will always have value. And I can take it and I can bury it and I can say no matter what comes, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to have something. But Peter says even that fades in value compared to the incredible worth of what is stored in heaven for you and me. He says in verse five, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As we grab onto this living hope through faith in Christ, Peter says God's power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, shields us, carries us forward 
through whatever trials we face as followers of Jesus to the end of our days here on earth when God's salvation will be fully revealed and when it fully comes into our lives. But now, this doesn't mean that we don't go through struggles, that we don't experience adversity in the meantime, in the present. Peter knows that. knows that though we can and should be excited about what the future holds, faith isn't magic. It doesn't make all of our problems just magically disappear. We've got to keep going. So he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And he doesn't spell out exactly what these trials will be, but they very well may have and do, in fact, entail some suffering. But he says, interestingly, that these trials actually serve a purpose. We think, I, I don't want any trials in my life. I don't want any struggles. But he says in verse 7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when, when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying that, guys, there really is a purpose and a value for us to go through trials in life. And he likens it to the process of refining gold. When you have gold and in, in, in ore, it, it's not worth very much, and you have to start refining it, and you, you put it under heat. And through that heat, you begin to remove the dross and the parts of it that aren't much of much value. And it continues to concentrate and become more pure and more genuine. And he's saying through our trials, we increasingly learn that we can't do it ourselves. That we can't fix everything. That we can't make everything work out the way we think it ought to. We can't do it myself, mommy. And therefore, we discover we must rely on God. And that realization... Every time I realize again that I need to rely on God, I have to rely on God, I can't do this myself, my faith grows and becomes more genuine, becomes more of what it's intended to be. And when Christ returns and is revealed to all, that means that, that at that point we won't have to live by faith anymore. His return will be obvious. Even, even to those who've dismissed him, there are people you know, maybe even some in here today, who aren't sure this thing is real and not sure he exists. But what the promises of Scripture is that someday you will know, I will know, and especially those who claim he isn't real will know. It says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, whether you have followed him or not, there is a day when every single human being will confess that Jesus is Lord. It may not be because you're excited about it. It may be that you have no choice and that his return will result in praise glory and honor and we'll receive an eternal heavenly vindication those of us who have believed that we made the right choice to live by faith in Christ even if there are a lot of people around us today who think we're crazy you have people in your lives who if you're a follower of Christ you know they think you're a little at least a little odd or you're wasting your time or you're nuts right how many of us have people around us who think that of course of course, many of us thought that before we discovered who Jesus was. It's not that they're bad people. It's that they haven't learned the whole truth. But it will turn out that we 
have not been the crazy ones. And in fact, our living hope has carried us through our trials, giving us something to hold on to until he appears, until he is revealed, until he comes on the clouds, until his return. So as we trust Christ, we discover we need him and that his grace is enough. It is sufficient. It gets us through. And this trust, this faith in Christ is is, is very real for the, for the fullness of God's salvation isn't here yet. We're not, we're not basking in all the warmth yet. We're not going to say everything's hunky-dory and, and, oh, I'm a Christian and it couldn't be better all the time. If you're saying that, you're probably not really in tune with what's going on in life. But Jesus is with us, with me, with you, and someday all will be revealed. And yet in the meantime, the Bible says that we live by faith, not by sight. And the Bible defines faith as the confidence that what we hope, what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And the good news is this hope is not just a hope in something, it's a hope in someone who came back to life, who is resurrected from the dead. Peter knows these Christians he's writing, haven't, they haven't actually seen Jesus. They didn't even see him resurrected, just as you and I haven't. But that does not mean our faith is not genuine and valuable. He goes on, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith. The salvation of your soul. We don't see Jesus physically today. He's not walking in our midst. Yes, some, there are some who do have visions and, and praise God. But for the vast majority of us, that's not our story. But our faith assures us that he is here. He is with us. He is preparing a salvation so wondrous that we who trust him can even experience joy now. Even in the midst of trials and suffering, in the confidence of what the future holds for us, that it cannot tarnish that truth, that reality, regardless of what's going on. Paul, Peter says, our living hope for the future sustains us. In fact, he says, it even gives us joy now, in the present, when we can't see him, as we live by faith. Because this joy isn't because we're suffering, but because we know that when we do suffer for our faith in Christ, we know that one day we will be vindicated. All those people who made fun of us, those people who said, you're crazy, those people who said, what do you think you're doing? Someday, they are going to stand before Jesus. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. And in that day, we will be vindicated. And that assurance carries us through these days. Then Peter gives us one more insight. What his readers then and what we are going through was, was not only predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament, but in fact, he says it was Christ himself who was revealing to the prophets what was to come, introducing, including not only his sufferings, but also Christ's glorification through resurrection. Peter says in 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
Even angels long to look into these things. He's saying the prophets, you know, some of those folks who wrote whole books, it seems like, in the Old Testament, those prophets long to experience what you and I are experiencing today. They want to know. They believed a Savior was coming. They believed some kind of Messiah. They stood on that side of the cross. You and I stand on this side of the cross where it's not just something we hope, but we in fact know has come. He is risen and, and it has in, in the world today. They were Jewish prophets, but they were speaking to Gentiles, Christians today of Peter's time and, and, and of today as well. As God progressively revealed his will, his plan, his assurance that his grace is real in whatever we're going through. The prophets... Peter said, and in fact, even the angels have longed for that. They've wanted to see. You and I are experiencing something that the angels didn't even get in on. And it is something that they long to be a part of. They long to experience it with us by the power of his spirit. So as we explore this life, we've probably discovered in, in a lot of ways that at the, at the very least, there, there's something missing. And, and, and very possibly, maybe we're experiencing some struggles, maybe some discrimination in our work setting or in our family or some from some friends for our faith. But Peter assures his readers then and he assures us today that because Jesus was resurrected from the grave, we have a living hope that carries us through whatever trials, whatever sufferings we may face. Because we know in Jesus, salvation is real. And all of its fullness, all of its glory awaits us in heaven. Yes, we will go through trials but Peter says that isn't all bad because God uses those trials to grow us, to prepare us for the glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns. And he gives us grace and he gives us peace through his spirit to get through these times that we are going through. In fact, to even give us joy. By faith, we can walk the talk. We can follow Jesus wherever he leads us because his salvation is confirmed by his resurrection and his salvation is kept in heaven for you and me. You know, some of you may remember the actor Dean Jones. Um, He's in a lot of movies, uh, That Darn Cat, Blackbeard's Ghost, um, uh, The the Love Bug, and, and some of those. He was a Disney star, died on September 1st, just a few days ago at the age of 84. Uh, He had more money than he knew what to do with. He spent it on lavish homes, sports cars, exotic vacations. He he prated around with women. He uh, committed adultery and had affairs in his his relationship. And yet, though he seemed to have it all, though he seemed to have everything that people pointed to, he he said he he was depressed and even suicidal. Uh, he, He was looking kind of even addictively. He wanted the approval of his fans, he wanted our approval to help him feel better about himself, but it, all it ended up doing was shattering his marriage and alienating him from his kids. And, and, and life began to seem so pointless and fruitless to him that, that he, the only way he could get through it was with alcohol and affairs. According to his autobiography, Under Running Laughter, he heard a, a voice in his spirit one evening, and, and, and saying of his lifestyle, it said to him that it will never satisfy you. Never. And he started thinking, could I continue to deceive myself into believing that whatever vacuum existed within me could be fulfilled 
in the future by more stuff, bigger portions of all that I'd already consumed in the past. He had a drunk driving accident, nearly died, um, and it, it finally reached his breaking point. He'd grown up in a religious home, but he had rejected faith. But after that accident, he, he said he stopped running from God, and these are his words. He cried out to God, I've done everything in this world I thought would make me happy, and it doesn't work. I have everything, and I have nothing. I have no choice but to believe. And if you don't exist, then I'm a dead man. And he committed his life to Christ. And after his conversion, he said he experienced a peace he had never known. Remember the words to the, the Hebrews, to the Jews, grace and peace. The peace, the words that Peter spoke, grace to give you something you do not deserve, and peace. And just over a week ago, Dean Jones went from faith to fact as he no longer wondered, but he experienced the, the full joy of his salvation as he met Jesus face to face. Guys, the, the peace, the joy, the contentment, the purpose are all possible for us today not because there's stuff we can pursue, but because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. I wanna encourage you, if you have not committed your life to Christ, don't wait. Don't keep trying more and more stuff. Dean Jones is only one life of many that could tell you that no matter how much you chase, it's never gonna be enough. Because it isn't what we were made for. We were made for God, for a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And in just a moment, I'm gonna pray, and if, if you need to welcome him into your life this morning, I want you to, to repeat those words in your head back to God. Or if you need to recommit, if you need to, as we sang earlier, surrender all, that that's not just a nice words, but it is, God, I do surrender because I have tried on my own, and it has not worked. I'd welcome you to do that. And then after the service, our prayer team will be down here, and you can talk more with them if you like. But join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, for many of us, there have been all kinds of pursuits in life, and like our children, we've tried to do it ourselves. We thought we could manage it on our own, and yet as we grew, we discovered, no, we needed our mom and our dad. And as Human as Jews, they, they felt like they could do it on their own and God had to let them experience that. And, and in fact, many of them missed the whole point of Jesus Christ. And we're not unlike them in any way. That we think we can manage it on our own, that we can get through it by ourselves. But Father, you have given us a living hope in Jesus Christ. Not somebody dead forever, but someone who is alive forever who promises us that when we take his hand, we will walk with him into eternity and experience all the fullness of your salvation and even experience joy now in the midst of struggle. So Father, for those of us who need to welcome you into our lives, hear these words as we pray them. Father, I confess that I have sinned. I confess I have sought life on my own. 
I turn now to Jesus. I ask you, Father, forgive me of my sins through Jesus Christ. And I make him the Savior and the Lord of my life. From this day forward, I surrender all, all to Jesus, my great Savior. I surrender all. Father, whether we have said that before and we've taken some of it back or we're saying it for the first time, help us surrender all to you today. We ask this, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.